Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. And welcome to the Thinking Practitioner, where Books of Discovery has been a part of the massage therapy and bodywork world for over 25 years. Nearly 3,000 schools around the globe teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here, and they find that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast. And they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community thought-provoking and enlivening content that advances our profession. Instructors of manual therapy education programs can request complimentary copies of Books of Discovery's textbooks to review for use in their programs. Please reach out at booksofdiscovery.com. Listeners, that's you, can explore their collection of leading resources, leading learning resources for anatomy, pathology, kinesiology, physiology, ethics, and business mastery at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioner listeners save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. Lorimer Mosley, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm going to do my best to introduce you, although you, in my mind, clearly need no introduction at all. You are a Bradley Distinguished Professor at the University of South Australia, and I had to look up AO. This is your title. And you were, in 2020, made an officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Medical Research and Science Communication, to Education, to the Study of Pain and its Management, and to Physiotherapy to humanity at large. I think that's rather well said, honestly, because you have, too. <laughs> you have made an enormous contribution to our field. And uh, I actually did meet one person who hadn't heard of you in our uh, social <laughs> media post where I put it out there. I'm talking to Laura Mosley. What do you want me to ask? And uh, someone posted back, hey, I haven't heard of him. That's interesting. Who is he? I was like, what? You don't know Lorimer Mosley? <laughs> I, I, most people I met have uh, have never heard of me, so that's not surprising. Mm -hmm. What I did was I sent her, I hope you don't mind, I sent her the link to your TEDx talk you gave about 12 years ago, uh -huh. Why Things Hurt. And it has, at this point, I saw that it has over 1.3 million views. And I think it honestly helped to catalyze that conversation that you were a part of and that especially the attention that video got, helped to catalyze really profound changes in how pain is conceptualized in our field in hands-on therapy mm -hmm. and was a part of the many of the discussions that came out about pain and where, where it fits and how we might or might not help. Yeah. So I'm yeah, looking cool. forward to hearing, yeah, what might have changed in your thinking for these last dozen years or you know what's still useful. But anyway, this person that hadn't heard of you, she came back after watching that and she said something interesting. She says, okay, I got a question for him. I uh, have you, she said, have you been able to describe pain to those experiencing chronic, chronic pain in a way that helps them? And if so, how would you word it simply so that practitioners might be able to help their clients and patients? So I think <laughs> so that's, that's outstanding. What an outstanding start, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, uh, that question could also, it would have been the same question if she had have said, what have you been doing for the last 20 years? Right. <laughs> uh, because I, you know, can we, can we describe, so there was a few things in that. Um, yeah. you, do you want me to respond to that now? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe especially with how you, sure, how you got started, how you got there, and then we'll walk through some of those specifics. Like what, what do we know? What's changed and especially yeah. what can we do? Yeah, cool. I guess that's where we're all, we're all heading, isn't it? How can we, promote better consumer outcomes, ultimately, mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe not even consumers. It, ultimately, how can we improve human lives is probably where we're all heading. I I wonder if it might be helpful to, as briefly as I can, give give some historical context to the TEDx talk. Yeah, um, that would be great. Um, so my own interest in this, I guess, was ultimately uh, ignited through a, a lived experience of having back pain for a, a long time, consequent to a football injury. And uh, that really changed the course of my life. Uh, but it wasn't for 10 years uh, until I, I really discovered research 
So, you know, I'd been a physiotherapist for uh, eight years before I almost accidentally became a PhD student and then discovered uh, the, the synergy between that work, research, uh, my own character and and things that fascinate me. You know, I, I'm an explorer by nature and I'm fascinated by humans. And when you combine those two things, you know, into some sort of uh, matchmaking device, I'm sure it would would spit out you should become a clinical neuroscientist, which is sort of what I became. Um, but I guess the the clinical experience. So I've got this, you know, I had this lived experience of feeling, um, you know, during my training as a physiotherapist, I was, I was, I was in a lot of bother with this back pain for years, and. I would go to the biology and neuroscience and and even biomechanics lectures and get so excited, like, like really unusually excited about how wonderful and complex and you know amazing we are and and animals in general are. I mean, I love David Attenborough. I'm one of those sort of guys, right? Yeah. Um, and then I'd go into the clinical classes. And be confused because what I was learning in the in the more science-based classes is just full of hope, full of opportunity, full of the opportunity for personal innovation, uh, which wasn't penetrating the clinical classes. And so as even as I was training, I was thinking, this is a bit confusing. So what what hope is there for people like me uh if if we're not embracing and and trying trying to work with all this magic that we've got inside ourselves, you know, so uh, that was a, a an experience that I I had sort of from that lived experience perspective, and then I became a physio, and my own journey was uh, one of of grad of of almost not applying the clinical stuff and just getting off on the science and and ex- personal experimentation and. Uh, slowly recovered, and as a as a clinical physiotherapist, the next important thing for me was discovering that uh, people would come in for treatment, and I felt like I I've got nothing for you. My, my clinical skills, I, I I can't help you, and this is why you know. And I've I've always been a stickler for authenticity, telling the truth. Right. And I would say, this is why I think I can't help you. And it would all, you know, it would always be an account of my understanding of the science underpinning their experience. And what I started to notice clinically is that people would come back after a session where I just spent the time trying to help them understand how I understood the science of this. And they'd come back and they'd say, "Yeah, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely feeling a bit better. Can we just do more of the same?" And I would say, "But we didn't do anything." Yeah, yeah, no, you know how? And then it asked me something about what they'd learnt, and you know how you were talking about that truck driver, you know, the metaphors that I was using to explain things, and uh, and then as someone who has since my my favourite teacher at school, when I when I get injured playing football, I was in hospital, and my favourite teacher at school brought me science books, Charles Darwin's advice to young scientists and Thomas Kuhn's structure of uh, scientific revolution. And um, I love science. I am a card-carrying believer that the scientific method is the best method. It's not the only method. It's the best method we have for knowledge progression. So here I was observing this thing in patients, loving science, and I thought, righto, let's see if this is real. Because this could just be my bias, right? Yeah, I, I like to hear the things that I already believe in. So we did a couple of clinical trials of of what what happens when you intentionally explain to people in a way that you hope they understand, you know, as well as you can, how pain works and how chronic pain works, and and why the treatments and the approaches that uh, might not seem immediately intuitive, are actually the best ones. Um, so we did a couple of clinical trials and they showed important effects. Uh, and and that was towards the beginning of, of my research life. And then I learned how to do research properly. 
blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to 2011 or 12 or whenever it was when the, um, I was riding my scooter to work um, in the middle of November, which is the uh, the okay. moustache growing fundraiser usually for men's health. Do you have that? Oh, it's we should. <laughs> it's a play on November. It's Movember, and you you grow a moustache, and you you get sponsored to grow a moustache. And I thought oh. I'm going to grow a truck driver's moustache. So for you guys, it'd be a, probably be a lorry driver, or is that what you call them? No, anyway, tra- we call them trucks. A big big trucker. Yeah, yeah. moustache style is called a trucker. You know, it comes yeah. across the top of your lip and then down either side of your chin. Right. And I was halfway through growing this as a fundraiser for Men's Health and. Got a phone call on the way to work from the people running TEDx in Adelaide saying, our main speaker has just been in a car accident. We've got to fill the slot. Can you come? Uh, so I got on the phone to my PA and said, can you just grab a talk off my hard drive and send it to these people? And I just changed my direction and turned up to give that TEDx talk. Uh, and I, you know, I agree till I think that that, that, that talk were, you know, was received very well, and I think primarily by a massive number of uh, massive. I don't want to don't want to overplay this at at all, but by a we're talking significant... Taylor Swift scale <laughs> audiences here. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, gee, wouldn't that be great though in pain science if we had Taylor Swift singing a song? Yeah, actually, yeah. that's what that's anyone right. out there who knows Tay Tay uh-huh. get in touch and say. You can transform humanity here by right. getting this information out. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and we'll get back to that because I believe that might be true. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so I think there were a significant number of health professionals who were in similar place to me in in struggling to get across the fearful and wonderful complexity of how pain works and, and the human in a way that was enabling and empowering for their clients and uh, I'd been doing. I'd already been doing that for fifteen years, and uh, a lot of that clinically. I mean, the number of times I've told that snakebite story. Whoa, you know, I could I could go to sleep and tell you word for word that snakebite story because I I did it you know, every day, sometimes twice a day for years, yeah, uh, with groups of patients, and you'd work out what lands and what doesn't. Um, but then to fast forward, you know, so to that ultimate question. So that's the background of the TEDx talk, which, you know, it's, I agree, it's had a lot of views, but it's, you know, it's on loop in in hospital waiting rooms and, and pain management programs. None of that's, none of that's counted, but it's, it, it is a really useful conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think among the things that we've learnt, since then, so it's a long time ago. Uh, one of them is that was a really naive position that I was in. I was in a really naive position with respect to learning uh, educational strategies, conceptual change strategies, and uh, you know some of what was in that TEDx talk was so, really the core. Yeah. yeah, it was really the core of that sort of explained pain stuff and. You know, probably eight years before that talk, David Butler and I had written "Explain Pain," and and I think that was that was a significant. Sorry, I've got my phone ringing. That that was a significant. Uh, let me let me do not disturb myself. Um, "Explain Pain" was a you know quite a significant contribution as far as also opening up that conversation. But uh, you know, we've realised since then in clinical trials and mainly in real-world data from, you know, 1,500 people that uh, the that conventional way of explaining pain, you know, that didactic, we did it in the clinical trials early on and, that, and there are now 70 clinical trials that include that didactic pain education as part or entirety of the treatment. And they consistently show a small effect across the group. Um, But our real-world data show quite clearly that we are only getting conceptual change or getting some degree of understanding with with that approach. We're only getting understanding in 50% of people. Mm -hmm. And this is with good educators really intensely doing it using that approach that we pioneered 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So... 
well, the real world data show that we're not very good at educating people about pain. Yeah. Uh, me, you know, the way that I was doing it and the way that it's done clinically as a real intentional thing, it's not very effective. Um, but in the people, so that's the bad news. The good news, uh, and this is what's motivated a real shift in our research in the last sort of six or seven years, the good news is that when people understand, so when our education is good enough and they understand, the outcomes are way better than we ever thought they could be. Mm-hmm. You know, transformative outcomes. We've got data showing that in that in that fifty percent of people for whom education is effective, they the majority are becoming close to pain free a year later, and these are people with years of chronic pain. So. This is that that real world data combined with all this clinical trial data, and now our group and others are are really interrogating with patients and clinicians. What's the best bits? How do we get this across? All that. Yeah, uh, I am. I have way more oomph for uh, the statement. We we can prioritize giving people the resources to master their situation, and those resources are about understanding for enablement and empowerment and i like to say for excitement uh, about the potential transformation of their pain system over time yeah so anyway so all that to say we don't you know education now looks very different from what it looked like when that tedx talk was produced um in content and in delivery yeah. And you may have uh, hit on this, but I, I did sort of pick up in one of your podcasts. And by the way, for those who aren't aware, you have a wonderful podcast um, out there. Uh, Lorimer Mosley podcast is its name, right? Uh, I think it's called Pain Matters. And thanks yeah. for the compliment, Whitney. You yeah. know, I'd, I've listened to one and I cringed. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, we, well, we all, we all anyway. do. We listen to our own stuff yeah. there, but uh, it's really good and very <laughs> informative. But in the, in one of those, you had talked about there being um, some different phases of the pain science education process that we've moved through over the course of the years. And uh, I was wondering, mm-hmm. can you kind of briefly summarize where you see that? I know it's, you've, you've kind of talked about that a little bit, but maybe just sort sure. of a brief summary of that. Yeah, sure. I um, I think it's really important, actually. So I, I would do, I would um, split pain ed- patient or consumer or general public facing pain education into three phases. Now, uh, one I would call ancient pain education, and that's what was was around up until we're well, still around in some places. But that was the only thing around until around the turn of the century, uh, and that was covered broadly by concepts like back school, um, you know, with a lot of stuff around anatomy, physiology, lifting, ergonomics, posture, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and then some pretty rudimentary advice on uh, pacing, relaxation, things like that, right, with with no attempt to give people an understanding of why these things might be important. Uh, just this is what you should do, advice. Um, or this is how the intervertebral disc works. Uh, unfortunately, even the, the content of that wasn't how the intervertebral disc works. No, no one thought to mention that it's not a disc, mm-hmm. uh, nor that it can ever possibly slip. But nonetheless, we could go on about that for years. So ancient pain education was really about structure and and behaviour. Then I would say along came what is widely known and now the dominant component of pain education, I think. Uh, We would call it pain neuroscience education. So that that is the the name that became popular for, uh, well, I guess what we started with these clinical trials in the early 2000s that we called explain pain or therapeutic neuroscience education or something like that. Uh, I think our first paper is called intensive education on the neurophysiology of pain, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that sort of stuff. That's that didactic model that I would now call old school pain education. Mm -hmm. So we've got ancient, we've got old school, but all of the clinical trials you know, around pain, it's pain neuroscience education, uh, old school pain education. The meta-analyses clearly show that that's got small effect sizes, but they're significant, they're clinically important. So I would say old school pain education is in quotation marks, good. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It's not very good or excellent, uh, but it's better than useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would describe the new wave of pain education. And uh, I'm part of an international collaboration called the PETL collaboration. PETL stands for Pain Education Team of Absolute Legends. Uh, and we, um, as a collective, we thought we need to differentiate the current education strategy, pain education strategy, from pain neuroscience education because it's a different format. It's a modified content. It's a broader content because it's across the sciences, not just neuroscience. Uh, It's delivered differently. So we called that uh, pain science education. And that that phrase is already being adopted, but unfortunately it's being adopted to retrofit what is actually old school pain education. So I prefer this idea of ancient pain education. No one should be doing that. The evidence says this is worse than useless. Old school pain education, it's good, it's didactic, uh, it's that classic pain neuroscience education. And then I would say pain education 2.0 or modern, uh, but what we're calling it is pain science education, which is incorporating the stuff we're learning about the best content, the strategies by which to, to get it across and the ways we can integrate it with other models of care. For example, body work. How do you integrate that? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the principles of delivery? How do we evaluate? Uh, what are the easy easy wins? What are the mistakes that most people make that are probably making things harder? Is that it, it, does that work, Whitney? Does yeah, that, absolutely. Um, yeah, it gives a good good encapsulation of the, the different phases of where we're at there. And your your final phrases there are the teaser. We, we are curious about what does work, about how what you've learned in your 30 years or so of pain science education could be relevant to our practice. I mean, I think most body workers don't think of themselves as educators per se. Uh, and I wonder if it would be useful to get a picture of some of the essential elements of what you consider education mm-hmm, when you do that, mm-hmm. so that we can look and see what can we learn from you in our field. Ah, uh, cool. Um well, I guess my first response to that is, uh, it, you know, education is a pretty broad mm. thing, and and I think there would be some pretty compelling arguments that even without speaking, without any conversation, uh, body workers are educating uh, by virtue of the fact that they're delivering stimuli and and within certain conjured contexts and frames of working and things like that. Um, so they're changing the way the person in front of them or from a scientist but you know scientist perspective, the way the organism uh, stores data and uses that data for future decision making. So uh, in some in some way education is really broad. but if we do confine it to that more conventional idea of of targeted learning objectives, uh, I would say if there's a conversation happening anywhere during the mm-hmm. interaction or before the interaction or after the interaction, it's an opportunity for education. Um, so in answer to your question, Till, I think uh, I would divide what we've learned over the last sort of six or seven years primarily into what we've learned about content and what we've learned about delivery um, and as far as content is concerned, we have done a lot of work uh, mining the wisdom of people with chronic pain who have now recovered. So uh, we've got data from hundreds of people who were in trouble for months and usually years with chronic pain, and they recovered. And we asked them, how'd you do it? What, what was important? Uh, what were the main things that you learnt that enabled you and empowered you to recover? And that's been an, a, an incredibly fruitful research line. We, when we're publishing that data, now we publish a lot of that data. Um, and I can summarise all of that process, heaps of, heaps of work over a decade, but the content that we're at that that I would say is the almost like the minimal education curriculum yeah. in a therapeutic encounter with someone with chronic pain. Uh, and I would probably go, pain, someone 
with pain and it wouldn't be a big nudge to say any therapeutic encounter, full mm -hmm. stop. Um, and so there are four, we've come up with four, what we call um, now, because consumers have told us to call it this, the essential pain facts. So there are four essential pain facts that I think every body worker should have in mind when they're having a conversation, when, they, when they're in a relationship with someone uh, and those essential pain facts are, number one, pain protects us and promotes healing. And that might not sound very striking, but I would encourage everyone to think, think carefully about how that aligns with their current understanding of pain. Because most people, when they think of pain, they would, they would more readily say pain detects pathology or detects danger. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not, that's not how pain works. So, you know, I, I, I could argue this <laughs> in any context that the evidence that pain detects damage is very, very poor. In fact, I would say it's absent. The evidence that pain occurs in order to prevent damage is very compelling. This uh, is the central thought, I think, your TEDx talk or much of the debates that came out at that period of time were about is, you know, that decoupling pain from damage opens up all kinds of possibilities and raises all sorts of questions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And it it is it presents so many opportunities for intervention mm -hmm. you know, if we really embrace that. So anyway, so pain protects us and promotes healing. And within that are concepts like peripheral sensitization in the presence of injury or inflammation, uh, the the uh, interpretation of a flare-up, for example, all that sort of stuff. The second essential pain fact is that persistent pain overprotects us and prevents recovery. Uh, tied up in that are a whole lot of principles like central sensitization uh, or what the peak body would now call nociplastic pain, stuff like that. Um, the lived experience of anyone who's had pain on most days for more than a few months, like it or not, the system is winding up. Uh, and that's it's an inbuilt property of animals uh, is that repeated protection, this, the protective systems get better at doing what they're doing. It's just less bioplasticity or neuroplasticity across systems. The third- I have the feeling, yeah. sorry, I have a feeling you said something really important. I want to make sure I get my head around it. You're saying that ongoing pain is also protective, that it's the system winding up or in a way learning. Yeah, I think so. Did I get that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I would say it because of the way that neuroimmune networks, and I guess more specifically synapses work, neuron to neuron and neuron to immune cell synapses, the way that they work uh, at a cellular level means that the more the more often we produce pain as an organism, the lower the the threshold to produce it will become because our system learns how to do it better. Uh, and so then we have a situation that clinically we call allodynia and hyperalgesia, uh, but neurophysiologically we call it a reduction in postsynaptic membrane excitability. Uh, in, uh, in clinical terms, in the consumer's words, we call it pain system hypersensitivity. So it's often talked about pain. as the pain system going wrong or somehow getting stuck in a state that it shouldn't, in quotes, be in. But you've reframed that. You're saying it's actually also learning and protecting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm emphatic on that. I think uh, it's not going wrong. This is how it works. And it <laughs> works like this in all of us. The speed with which it adapts will vary a lot between individuals because of lots of reasons. But I will often find myself saying to people challenged by chronic pain that this is a normal response to an abnormal set of circumstances. So it's not, in my view, it's not the pain system going wrong. And, you know, it'd be, it would be a healthy debate that I would be engaged with, with other people I have a deep respect for who would say it is the pain system going wrong. I don't conceptualize it like that. 
um, I feel like it's doing something pretty predictable based on biological principles. Uh, and in a way, it's it's a moot point because the the outcome is not helpful. You know, people are protected from doing things they actually need to do to fully recover because it hurts. And, mm-hmm. and it makes a lot of sense to, you know, if it hurts to bend over, don't bend over. That's that's a, almost, that's the that's why pain is so effective because it stops you doing things that the system believes is dangerous. The, the problem is that the system, the threshold for what is dangerous has reduced so much. Uh, and so that's how, you know, that's how with all these sort of consumer-focused research, we capture that with persisting pain is overprotective and prevents recovery. The third essential pain fact is that many factors influence pain. Uh, it's a simple one. It will be very intuitive to anyone in doing body work, right? Because we know that, right? Like you're like, you can see how many factors in people's lives affect their pain, their fatigue, uh, their activation of muscles, what we might feel as tightness or stiffness or what they might experience as stiffness or tightness. Um, many factors influence that. So that's a pretty easy one for a lot of health professionals who work with people with chronic pain to get their head around. And the fourth essential pain fact comes off the third one, Uh and starts with, you know, therefore, there are many ways to reduce pain and to and to slowly, and there's two ways we could say this, and to slowly recover or to slowly retrain the pain system back to normal protective settings. Uh, and they're the four essential pain facts. That doesn't mean that um, that's all we want to get across, but if I think anyone working in a relationship with someone challenged by or at risk of chronic pain um, should be aware of the essential pain facts and how they can communicate those essential pain facts within the context of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, until you you said um, the, the teaser, how do we how do we integrate that? Uh, I think we can integrate it in many ways from. Uh, having ready a whole lot of resources that we can refer our patients to, um, not just the TEDx talk, but you know we're we're one group who's developing those resources that are freely available online as a rule or in book form that people usually have to buy, or uh, there are apps that are doing stuff now. Um, although the best evidence on apps is that retention is on average about four days or something. But um, so one is having the resources. So you, you my therapist, end of the session. That was interesting how after I did this, whatever it was that I did, you were able to move more freely. Uh, the, the most obvious explanation for that is that we've adjusted, we've, we've had, had some effect on your nervous system or your immune system and just wait for the response. Mm-hmm. Because what you'll probably see is something, you know, a bit like, you know, I don't know if people will be seeing this, but, you know, you could quote like subtitles on the television, uh, Lorimer adopts a confused face, <laughs> uh, you know, and then there's the opportunity. Oh, yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? But when I do that, a whole lot of messages enter your nervous system and now your brain has changed the way it's turning on muscles. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, isn't it? If you want to learn more about that, here there's a great resource. Here's this great TED talk, or there's this great video, or here and here's the little business card with a QR code or whatever it is that you choose to give them. But my view is that we have all that ready, catalogued, uh, and and maybe as I'm saying this, I'm thinking maybe we should convince some sort of commercial entity to make a whole lot a catalog with QR codes for the best resources out there at the moment or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So idea. that's one thing. Yeah. yeah. The the next way is in in the conversation to to just remind people that pain is protective for example. And how many opportunities do you have when people flinch and and they say well that hurts. And our response might be oh yeah you've got a knot there or that's a trigger point or whatever. 
What if our response was, okay, so your system is really protecting you from this part? Just mm-hmm. a little message. Yeah. Uh, that's a subtle reframe, so. mm-hmm. a different possible explanation that might open some possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the easiest, the easiest practical response to this bucket load of research from the perspective of uh, body workers, or any, I think any clinician, is to just hold up your explanations and your responses to what people say to the essential pain facts. Mm-hmm. Do they fit? And if they don't fit, change what you say so that they fit because you, the data strongly suggests that you can be part of a transformation by promoting a, a more contemporary understanding of how pain works. Yeah. One of the things... Um is we're kind of talking about this education end of things that I, I was burning question for me. I really wanted to ask because as an educator, I'm aware that the the less time that you have to explain a concept, the better the teacher needs to be in order to make that understandable. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. our clinicians who have such a very short period of time to explain things to the clients and the patients that they're working with. Um, you know, how, if you have any kind of suggestions, how does one get much, much better at that little educational piece of of getting complex things across to people about, you know, neurophysiology in just a very short period of time, especially to somebody who knows nothing about it to begin with. Mm, yeah. That's, that's a, such an important acknowledgement, I think, Whitney, and, and target. And I guess my response to that would be uh, take the pressure off ourselves, you know, we don't have to take people through a year's worth of neurophysiology each session. Uh, one of the advantages of of the work that that people like massage, osteo, physical therapists, myotherapists, rolfers, that one of the advantages is often a relationship, uh, and we can be patient about getting people uh, in, about conveying an understanding of this stuff. So I don't think we need to be in a hurry. Um, we need to be honest, but I guess the more practical answer to that question from my perspective is uh, to always be be dangling the hooks uh, because it we know that learning is most effective if it's if it's active if if someone's doing something to learn. So that's one of the mistakes that I made, and I think unfortunately. I've influenced a field who who is all ma- who are all making this mistake um, that we try and just force data on people, um, and that can make us feel really, really good about what we're doing. Um, it certainly had that effect on me. I thought, oh yeah, look, yeah, I'm explaining this, blah blah blah. I've had a couple of key moments where I realised, wow, oh, shit, that that wasn't. That wasn't anywhere near as good for them as it was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I guess we're, we're always thinking about how do we dangle something? So we don't have much time and we're thinking, oh, gee, I want to get across essential pain fact one. Uh, where I would start would be to try and evoke a question, the answer to which is your learning objective. Uh, and that can be hard, but you can you get better at it with practice. Mm-hmm. And anyone listening, remember the first time you felt a neck and and you thought, hang on, this person's got no vertebrae, right? Because it was so unfamiliar under your fingers. And then slowly over time, you learn how to feel things and you can become very nuanced in what you're feeling and you get better at it. Well, it's exactly the same with education. You get you You practice it. You have your failures. And I think it's easier to have the failures when you get the question wrong than when you blurt out something that actually disrupts their trajectory in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Or you get this, you know, this posture, uh, for those of you who can't see me, it's the Lorimer stands with arms crossed. Uh, We call that the fuck off posture. Uh, You know, when you say you want to get this data out, but what they hear is, I don't believe you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think this is all in your head. And that is the worst message. But that's the takeaway that people could take is that you're being told it's all in their head. Yeah. And there's this persistent narrative that I hear in conversations 
with body workers or with educators that pain science is difficult or pain science is complicated or that we need a lot of time to get it across or that people don't understand the data or and I question mm-hmm. all those myself because I think you've given us some mm-hmm. essential you said pain facts or essential concepts that simply open up possibilities for people that mm. begin to open up some other ideas and other avenues yeah but uh, you know I'd love to respond to that too because I think it uh it is it is really well evidenced that pain science is difficult uh, in our clinical trials, when we we do treatments, uh, we look at we look at mediation analyses. So mediation analyses are using assessments to work out why there was a reduction in pain or a reduction in disability, uh, and to look at when things happen. And our mediation analyses, not just our own group, but anyone doing high quality clinical trials in this area, when they look at the question, how does it work? The answer is consistently, it works through learning about pain, reconceptualizing your understanding of pain. So we at one in one one source of data that empirical data is saying uh, education is key to the best treatments we have. We also ask patients who are involved in these trials and the health professionals who are delivering treatments about their experiences of this and stand out the most difficult thing for the health professionals pain education mm-hmm. most difficult thing for the patients pain education so what you've observed there till and you have these conversations I, I guess i want to reassure anyone who's thought those things to say yeah you're in the majority in thinking those things it is difficult and even though we have managed to um funnel this stuff down to, okay, here are four essential pain facts, plain language. Uh, it's still difficult. And I think our our ability to convey the understanding of these things to, to people with whom we're in relationships will be better the more we understand it ourselves. So I guess my, my challenge, and I would, I would go so far as to say, I believe in the face of the evidence, the responsibility that all all these people you're having these conversations with now have is to understand as much as you can. I know it's hard, but that's your job. <laughs> that's my feeling about it. Learn, learn about it, understand, but but don't feel like you're the only one who's finding it difficult. Don't feel like you're the only one who sees conflict between something you learn and something you thought was true beforehand don't feel like you're alone in in really wrestling with some of the implications of this for you as a body worker or as a person uh but at the same time i I would say celebrate that internal conflict and that dissonance because that is learning that what's happening inside you is a change in how your brain is processing information towards what the scientific method tells us is most likely true at the moment and they'll keep moving because that's science. But in a way, I mean, one of my responses to those conversations, I always have two responses. I'm so empathic. You know, I think, yeah, this is hard. This is a nuisance. People are so much more complex than we'd like them to be. Wouldn't it be great if this person was actually just a trigger point? Wouldn't that be great? I could just fix them. Mm-hmm. But they're not. Humans are complex. We're in complex relationships. They have complex contexts. But but I guess the other hat that I wear is, but you're in the bed. You've made this bed. You got to do this because mm-hmm. that's your job. You have a responsibility to to people to be good at it. Yeah, I'm thinking your pragmatism here, your realistic re, uh, uh, description of the difficulties there must have a parallel to how we talk with patients and clients too about pain. Absolutely, and it yeah. Isn't, can you say something about the role of optimism or encouragement? Like where is that helpful? Where that might not be helpful? Those kinds of things. Yeah, I think I think one thing that we're gaining a deeper and deeper respect for is the critical role of validation mm-hmm. within an educational context. Um, and you know, when, whenever I've you know been maybe doing a course or 
or talking to students, um, uh, I people say, you know, so so what's if there's one thing I have to do differently or one thing I have to make sure I do, what is it? And for me, it's never a, a, about pain science education. <laughs> it's always about you got to respect the person in front of you, and you and I think you have to do your best to metaphorically sit on that bench of whatever shit they're in alongside them and understand what it's feeling like and what what it looks like here because i think with with respect and empathy and kindness we can we can then you know if that's the platform i think we can build on challenging conversations and uh i guess calling people on things and and presenting potentially confronting scientifically based evidence but how do we capture that as, as a way to operationalize or, or make it happen. I think validation, being a being great at validation is important. And in uh, one of the people in our research group, Sarah Woolwork, is working with um, Mel Knoll from Canada uh, on, on validation, particularly around children. But in the therapeutic encounter, we tend to validate not the feeling, but the... Sh- the possible explanation for the feeling. And people are very good at validating. Health professionals are very good at validating. But what we find is that, yeah, they someone says, oh, I mean, I've got the worst back pain ever after I picked up that box. And they'll say, yeah, well, the, you know, that was a heavy box. Or, yeah, I mean, the scans, it's horrible, isn't it? But that's not that's what someone's heavy. experiencing, right? Mm-hmm. What I think to validate their experience is, yeah, it looks like you're in brutal pain. That must be horrible. You validate the experience. Validate the experience that, as opposed to the explanation or the mechanism. Or yeah, particularly okay. when the explanation's probably wrong, mm-hmm. right? You know, how mm-hmm. many times do we hear about surgeons who say, "Well, it was the it, it was the messiest knee I've ever seen. No wonder you were in a lot of pain." Yeah. Uh, the first bit, from much cat- catastrophization, and you know. The, the savior complex for the surgeon. So the, the role we of optimism, that, I we think, get that as body workers too. We get, you yeah, know, we have the thing you know, that the stuff body workers say that probably isn't helpful to hear as a client. Yeah. But you were yeah, going to say physios are the same. We're our health yeah. professionals are the same. We like to just slip in little reminders of our own expertise and how important we are for someone else's life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, some, you know, the, the last physio must have missed that. Right, uh, uh-huh. but I've got you know I'm very experienced with hamstrings. Mm-hmm. Will be days. Uh, but the the question about optimism, I think, yes, I, I guess I come back to that idea of um, uh, of respect, empathy, and kindness. Because optimism is great, but if we're not reading the room, it can be very invalidating mm-hmm. because it can come across as uh, don't be worried. <laughs> Uh, I am worried. Yeah, oh, but think on the positive. You know, you're not in Syria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's not a very validating thing, but it's optimistic. Uh, I think that it's challenging for us to find the balance. And I am not the truth sheriff on this stuff. You know, I I I fully respect the challenge of getting it right, but almost everyone listening we'll have decades left to get it right. Just keep getting better. That's what I would say. That's great. Well, I I want to respect your time and I really appreciate what you shared with us. Thoughts you'd like to end us on? Oh, uh, I I think that the, the underlying science of how the human works presents to us a massive... Uh, breadth and depth of opportunity to improve someone else's life. Uh, But I think we have a responsibility both to understand it as well as we can. Uh, And the data say when we do that, the clinical outcomes of our patients will be better. But also to be very self-reflective in the moment to to do all the stuff we're wanting our patients to do, um, to to hold up our experiences against the best available evidence, to be courageous, uh, to to almost chase failure in order to improve all that sort of 
stuff. Uh, yeah, but, you know, at the same time, you ask a question like that, and I think, no, I don't look. We're all just trying to do our best, right? That's all we can do, I well, think, at I, a certain point. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I want to thank you personally for being a model of that, uh, what you're describing there, the perseverance, but also the humility with which I know you've spoken very openly about the limitations and the challenges around this path you're on as well. So it's a great model Thanks, for Jill. us all. Mm -hmm. You're coming to North America this year. Uh, how can people find out more about that or about your work? Well, I'm coming to North America. I'm so excited. I haven't been to North America for five years. And mm -hmm. the, oh yeah, the change in, in well, the stuff I've learned in the last sort of five years uh, is really exciting to me. And, and I think it presents exciting new opportunities. So I'm, uh, I'll be running th uh, three two-day courses in North America, um, all about how to put pain science into practice. Um, all health professionals. We often get a few consumers, but yeah, we're really targeting uh, health professionals. Um, your guys would be perfect. Uh, the way to find out about it is to go to noigroup.com and look under courses. Um, Put going this in to the show notes, group.com. Yeah. Check it out for the schedule, the way to take part in that, whether you're in North America or beyond. I know there's lots of other resources there as well. Yeah. 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 And and the other website is painrevolution.org. So it's a charity that I started in 2017, 2018. Um, resources, but always changing, always trying to, to provide better stuff. Lots of fact sheets in lots of languages. Um, check it out there. If the language that you wanted in is not there, then get in touch and help us translate it, um, that sort of stuff. Uh, North America is Vancouver, San Fran, and New York City. That's where you're stopping off. Okay. So great to to chat with you guys. Congratulations on what, what you do. And, um, yeah, it's it's tops. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've contributed and, and uh, wonderful contributions to all of these fields of, of pain management. And especially for us in the manual therapy world, we, we certainly uh, take great inspiration from everything that you've done. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. Thanks, Whitney. No, I appreciate mm. it. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll do our sponsor rollout and then close up for the day. The Thinking Practitioner podcast is supported by ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education and quick reference apps, online scheduling and payments with PocketSuite, and much more. And ABMP's CE Courses podcast and Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including from Till and myself. Thinking Practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So thank you to all of our listeners and also to Lorimer as our guest today. You can stop by our sites for, for the video show notes and any extras. You can find that on my site at the Academy of Clinical Massage.com. And Till, where can they find that with you? My site, advanced-trainings.com. And if you've got comments or questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, you can record a short voice memo on your phone and email it to us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. I'm at Whitney Lowe under my name there until people where can, uh, they can find you. Under my name, Till Luca, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. And you can also hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you listen. Please do share the word. Tell a friend. Thanks again, Lorimer and Whitney. Such a great conversation with you today. Sounds good. We'll see you in the next one. See you later. Okay.